So uh, you may have seen in this week's email, I send out um, our sermon titles, and this week's lesson uh, title is Jesus' Lesson on Love. And man, isn't that cheesy that we would have a sermon title dealing with love the week before Valentine's Day? Um, I have to say, as a disclaimer, we wrote our titles, um, not our titles, but we chose our scripture verses back in like October or November. And when I was getting ready, I was like, dang it, this is about love. Everybody's going to be like, they planned a sermon about Valentine's Day. Well, why not go with it? We're going to do it. So um, I'm really glad you guys are here tonight. And uh, what I want to say about Valentine's Day is there's something about that I've always had a really difficult time with personally, um, and that is expressing my feelings. Um, so listen to this. When you go to seminary, I started seminary. I do it online, and I also go there for like week-long intensives. Um, like two or three times a year. And so when I started seminary, I would take a 450 question multiple choice exam and then meet with a psychologist to review this exam. And so they kind of look for different things um, about your personality and kind of the way you deal with conflict. Um, maybe family dynamics that could have an impact on the way that you are able to minister with other people. And I'm about to spill my beans and you guys are gonna find out how messed up I am. Um, so one of the things I met with this psychologist um, up in Michigan this fall, he told me, you know what, you could really do a lot better job of expressing your affection. And I was like, you know, that's probably true. Um, I would say that I have love languages through which I express my affection, but sometimes sarcasm and teasing um, aren't the best accepted love languages um, for affection. So I kind of run into trouble because those are my strong suits. Um, and I've always been bad at this. I don't know if you guys did this, but when I was a kid in my second grade classroom, through like fifth or sixth grade, on Valentine's Day you'd have everybody's decorated shoe boxes. You guys do that? I thought so. Um, I didn't know if that was just a Pennsylvania thing. But, uh, so I would spend this sounds really weird, but I would spend such a long time um, picking out valentines and writing my name on which valentine and which person to give it to. I would always choose really neutral valentines, like ones that were like about football. Um, and the reason I did that is because I didn't want girls to think I liked them if I didn't actually like them. Um, and so I would choose really carefully which one to give to who. So, you know, if there was a girl I really, I didn't want her to get the wrong idea, I would give her a football valentine that said something like, have a ball this Valentine's Day, or something like that. Um, but uh, every once in a while, being a fourth grade boy, there would be, you know, one or two, or maybe like seven little girls who I maybe thought were cute. I wasn't aware. Um, and I would give them a Valentine that said something like, maybe it would have a football, and it would say, you're a catch, Valentine. She knew. Um, and so, you know, then I would go home, and I would look at my valentines, and I would try and decipher the messages and be like, oh man, like, she gave me a fish on a hook and says you're a catch. That probably means she likes me. Um, man, I could have wasted so much time on those, but it's kind of funny. I spent so much time figuring out how to properly express that affection. And I can't say I got a whole lot better about that as I got older. Um, but when it got to the time where me and my wife were um, really serious in our dating relationship, so this is really weird, and you guys are all going to think I'm so weird, but you already do, so what's it even matter? Um, so we would hang out, and you know, maybe we'd go for like a walk or something. We'd hang out for an hour, and the first thing I would do is go back to my dorm room and start writing my wife an email. That's when you know when you're in trouble, when you hang out with somebody and then you go immediately start writing them an email. It's over. 
Um, and so, uh, ironically, she would do the same thing. I guess that's why we've been married for five years now. Um, and so I just felt like no matter how much time I spent with her, I had more affection to express, and I needed a channel through which I could express it, and so I would write those long emails. Um, and I will say that we don't really do that anymore. Um, that would be so weird. So it's like, hey, so we've been married for five years, and like, we watched TV for an hour tonight, like we did last night, and the night before that, or something like that. <laughs> and so I think I'm going to go upstairs and bang out an email, you know, like just recap like how awesome our time watching Modern Family on DVR has been. Um, a popular pastime in the Lewenberger household. And uh, so I don't do that anymore. Does this mean that I love my wife less than I did when I was in college? Like, no. It's just that we express our affection for each other differently. Um, we don't do it in such dramatic ways anymore, um, or maybe such verbose ways, but our love is a lot stronger than it was then. And I think, um, I hope my wife can see from the way that I lived my life with her over the past five years that I love her very much, and that has grown, but our love is expressed in different ways. Um, though a well-placed email every once in a while would probably be nice. Um, I should probably get my act together on that. Um, so, in considering this relationship, how do we express love in a relationship through the way that we live? I think that's something that we need to consider as followers of Christ. And why don't you guys open up to John chapter 15. I want to go through this passage tonight that I think has so much to say for how we live as followers of Christ and our ability to accept Christ's love through our relationship with Him and our ability to express that love through the way that we live in the world. So we're in John 15. And uh, to give you a little bit of context, this is Jesus teaching the 12, um, not the 12 disciples, the 11 disciples right now um, in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he was betrayed. They're only 11 because Judas is with the high priests and um, getting ready to bring them and take Jesus away. So this is the last week of Christ's life. Um, and this is kind of an in-house conversation. Uh, this is Jesus speaking with his disciples. So he's speaking to people who are Christ followers, and that's really important for us to remember um, as we're going through this passage. Um, so let's pick up right in verse 1 of uh, chapter 15. And we're going to be kind of bouncing around through the text tonight. So if you want to pull out your phone or pull out your Bible, that would probably be good so you can follow along. Um, and I won't even know if you're checking sports scores. So uh, here we are in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. My mouth is tired after reading that from saying eyes and you so many times. Um, so to understand this passage, we need to upfront know that the vine was a really common metaphor for Israel throughout the Old Testament. Um, and this is something that we see all throughout the Old Testament, but a really clear passage uh, where this appears is Psalm 80, um, where Israel is referred to the vine, and that even foreshadows Christ. Um, so listen to this. This is Psalm 80. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we might be saved. 
You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. Return to us. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine. The root of your hand has planted. The root that your hand has planted. The sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand. The son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Um, so what Jesus is saying right there in that first verse is that he is the true vine, the true and better Israel. Um, the medium through which the fruit of God in the world grows as God presides over the process. Um, so keep bouncing around back and forth in that text as I kind of unpack this a little bit. Uh, we see that the, the branches connected to the vine are treated differently depending on whether or not they bear fruit. Um, so let's start with the positive, the branches that bear fruit. God prunes them so they can become even more fruitful. Uh, and so to understand this, we need to know that Jesus is teaching his apostles here in the spring. Um, and in the springtime, the disciples likely would have known how vine dressers in the ancient Near East carried out this pruning process um, with their fruitful plants. Um, this happened every spring and it was done so that plants would be fruitful again in the following season. Um, and so this pruning process, if you're all like me, this is kind of unsettling. Um, I so many times find myself thinking, if I'm on track with God, just leave me alone. I got a good thing going. Like, give me some space here. I like to stay comfortable in my spiritual walk. Um, but I don't think this pruning process is always something that's going to be very comfortable. I don't want to experience that. Um, but God always has more for us than we have for ourselves as we grow and mature. Um, in our knowledge of who he is and in our ability to live in response to that. Um, and the way that he often brings this growth about is through difficult times. Um, this is hard. Um, and the time, this is one of those things that always gets you. The time where we need to remember that God has our good in mind the most is the time you're going to want to believe that the least. Um, we need to expect pruning and trust that God knows what he's doing in these times. We could end it right there, huh? At least I could. I need to learn that lesson. Um, let's move on to the negative. Uh, so here we are in verse 2. This is some strong language that we see here. Um, we see in verse 2 that God cuts off the branches that aren't growing fruit. Um, and then we see in verse 6 that branches that aren't remaining in Christ are cast aside and then thrown into the fire and burned. And this is another verse where it's absolutely critical um, to understand the context if we're going to interpret these verses correctly. Um, so like there was a pruning process each spring for healthy branches, vine dressers also trimmed off unfruitful branches in the spring. And that's what Jesus is talking about here in verse 2. The reason the vine dressers did that was to give the branches a stimulus to grow and to bear fruit the following year. Um, so when we see in verse 6, Jesus describes the part of the vine dressing process that took place in the fall. Um, so in the fall, the vine dresser would prune the grapes for the winter by cutting off dead wood. Um, he wouldn't cut off the unfruitful branches that would produce grapes in the spring, um, pardon me, in the following growing season, but he would cut off the branches that didn't have a healthy connection to the vine. Um, so what we saw was in verse 2, Jesus does something to make unfruitful branches bear fruit. And then we see in verse 6 that Jesus does something to get branches with other problems, a bad connection, um, ones that may even be bearing some bad fruit back on track 
with the fruitfulness they're intended to bear. Um, so without understanding the context of these verses, um, we could really easily think that Jesus was teaching that people who are his followers, this is an in-house conversation, remember, um, we could think that Jesus is teaching that people can lose their salvation if they're not living fruitful lives or while connected to him. Um, but that would be pushing this metaphor to something it wasn't intended to mean. That's not what Jesus intended it to mean. What he's trying to say here is that the mark of someone who trusts in him is that their life will show it, and when it doesn't, God will get them back on track with his design for their life. Um, and so what Jesus is saying here, um, if he was saying that a lack of fruit would show that they could lose their salvation, this would contradict a lot of what Christ says in the rest of the Gospel of John, and it would contradict a lot of what we read later on in the New Testament. Um, so I want to share just a few examples of that. Um, this is really important. So in John 6, this is verses 37 through 40, and this is Christ speaking again. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Um, and then he says again in John 10, this is verse 28, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And this is something that's consistently taught um, through Paul's writings as well. This is Romans 8, 28 through 30. Um, we often hear the first verse, but it, the first verse of this really makes a lot more sense when we read the verses that follow. Um, so here we are. For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And there's a lot of language in there that would take a lot of unpacking, um, but this is kind of a concise explanation. What he's saying is God works in the lives of believers to conform them to the image of Christ. And God began that work in us, and he's going to complete that work in us. Um, and like we see in Paul's letter to Timothy, when we lack that faith, he will remain faithful. He will not disown himself. That's 2 Timothy 2, verse 13. So the point Christ was trying to make here is that believers who are not connected to Christ in intimate relationship cannot accomplish the purposes for which God has created them. And they miss out on a lot of joy that the relationship with God can bring. And there's a sense in which their spiritual detachment um, separates them from what life in Christ can really be. But God doesn't let them go. He works a process in them to get them to where he wants them to be. Um, so from this passage, it is pretty clear that this can be a really hard process. And let me encourage you, uh, everything about this process, everything about this passage teaches us that it's much more wise to abide in Christ than put ourselves in a position where he's going to need to work on us to get us back on track. Um, and so what does it really mean for us to abide in Christ? Um, we're picking up here in verse 7 now, so you can go back to your Bibles. Verse 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So Jesus here connects the existence of this kind of intimate relationship with his words. 
Um, knowing Jesus' words and allowing them to become a part of us, um, the center of how we live and think and feel creates this relational bond. Um, so as Jesus gives us these words, we strive to follow after them. God's Spirit works out this process in us, um, building our relationship with God. And we see that this relationship has real benefits. When you are in an intimate relationship with Christ, the desires of your heart that you ask for in prayer, your conversations with God, will be granted. Um, so, is this verse saying that if you are in an intimate relationship with Christ, um, all of a sudden God is your personal genie? I think we all know that's not true. Um, God, I want a pony. <laughs> no, not how it works. Um, what he's saying here is that when you're in an intimate relationship with Jesus, your perspective is changed to the extent that it is so focused on God's glory and wisdom and authority that the things that you reflect to God and ask from Him in prayer are going to reflect that relationship. Um, you aren't going to be asking for a pony. You're going to be asking and praying for the will of God to be done in the world, um, for His glory to be made known, and for Him to intertwine the story of your life with the story of His redemption in the world. Um, and this text says that God is going to make those prayers succeed. And... Uh, Let's continue on here. Look at verse 9. Uh, so we're going to finish this off. We're looking at verses 9 through 17. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has none than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. So we see here God's design for community. Uh, Christ has the same love for his disciples that the Father has for him. He wants the disciples to live in such a way that that is reflected in their relationships. Um, you know how this works. This is what we talked about earlier. When you love someone, you live in a way that your actions reflect that relationship. You don't act in ways that hurt your relationship or ignore what's important to them. I don't come home from work and say, honey, I love you so much that I got you this five-gallon bucket of dead fish. Here you go. You give people good gifts. You treat them in such a way that reflects your care for them. Um, and so if you know something is important to someone, we want to conduct ourselves in a way that honors that. That's exactly what Christ is saying here. That if you have that relationship, the way that you live your life is going to reflect that. And that's why he gives us his commands, so that we know how to live in a way that is going to build that relationship. Um, and what's really awesome is that what God's commands are about, um, they're not about oppressing our freedom. They give us uh, the gift of teaching us to know how to live. Um, they lead us into living a life that is according to his design in a way that builds our relationship with Him, in a way that allows us to experience great joy. And that relationship is something that allows us to meet the world with the Gospel. 
as that is reflected to others through the way that we live our lives in community. Um, and so Jesus gives us some really concise statements in his Gospels on his commands, because if it's really important to follow his commands, like it says in this passage, we better know what they are. Um, and so some really concise summaries of Jesus' commands that he gives us, we can check that out in Matthew 22, um, the greatest command. Um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And does anyone know the second? Spit it out. I know some of you got it. Boom. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, so in verse 12 that we just read, Jesus gives them a new command. Love each other as I have loved you. And uh, part of me just wants to say, wow, thanks for setting the bar low on that one, Jesus. Um, Love each other as I have loved you. Um, when we look at obeying this command, living with self-sacrificial love, um, that can be completely daunting if we divorce that quote from what God has done for us in Christ. Um, we have to read this in light of what we've already read in this passage. Christ loves believers like God loves him. Um, that is a really big deal. In light of that, believers, because of God's love for them, are to love each other in the same way. And God, uh, Christ gives us an example of what this looks like to the greatest degree there in verse 13, laying down one's life for one's friends. Um, and we know that this is exactly the degree of love that Christ displays for the church. And we as the church can only attempt to live out this kind of love because we've already received it from Christ. Um, we can only give what's been given to us. And it's all because of God's grace. Um, we see in verse 16, um, check that out. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. What Jesus is telling his disciples here is that they are in relationship with him because he pursued them. Um, this was not the tradition of the time. You may have heard this before, but religious students in Jesus' time chose the rabbis they wanted to follow, and they kind of joined their posse. Um, Jesus tells his disciples here that he sought them out. He had plans for them to be his friends. He pursued them to make it happen. And he had a purpose for their friendship, that they might be a people who succeeded in doing his will in the world as a result of that relationship with him. Um, and we see here again what we saw earlier, the success of God's people is founded in prayer. That's an amazing thing to think about, that God wants us to succeed. He chose us to succeed, and he enables us to succeed in our mission. Um, all we have to do is come to him in prayer, and he's going to grant those requests. He's going to use us for his purposes in the world. Um, and so when we think about how to walk away from this passage, we've covered a lot of ground here. Um, I want to start by asking you a question. And so... Remember, this is kind of an in-house conversation, and so this is a question that I want to ask you um, if you're a believer. Um, is living in close relationship with God a defining characteristic of your life? Um, there are times when I would answer that question, no. Um, though I was someone who trusted in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I was not living in close relationship with him. Um, maybe that was because of distractions. Maybe that was because of laziness. Maybe because that was bitterness. Um, maybe because there was bitterness in my heart as a result of being burned by relationships. Um, or just immaturity that I needed to grow up. Um, what we see in this verse is that if we're answering that question um, with a no, we're really missing out on a lot of joy. Um, 
there is so much joy in living in close relationship with God and knowing that you are fulfilling the purposes he has for you. Um, so maybe tonight is a time for you to say, um, maybe this is a time for you to get back on track um, and admit that you haven't been living in a way that reflects how important that relationship is to you. Um, maybe you're noticing in yourself that you are lacking some of that joy that comes from living with the most important thing in the world as the most important thing in your life. Um, maybe you need to say, God, thank you that even though my heart wanders, you don't let me go. Um, that is some darn good news in this passage. Um, this passage convicts us, but it doesn't leave us without hope. Um, God is going to get you back on track. Um, and a way that you can spare yourself a lot of pain is by humbly coming to him, admitting your brokenness and your desire to come back on track, because he's going to get a hold of you one way or another. Um, Thank you, God, that even though my heart wanders, you don't let me go. Um, help me to see your goodness and wisdom and to live in light of your gospel. Um, and that is something that all of us, um, if we're not needing to say that right now, that is something that we're going to find ourselves needing to say at some point in the future. Um, all of life is a walk. All of life is a walk of faith and repentance. Um, and so that's my challenge to you as well. If you're not someone who would say that you've chosen to identify yourself as a follower of Christ, this is an invitation to you as well. What are the things that are keeping you there? Um, what are the things that are keeping you from faith, from being willing to take a step back and really search your heart? Um, I'm not saying that there aren't good reasons, but I'm saying that the reasons that keep you from faith are something that you need to think about and question as well. And so this is um, something for all of us to think about. Um, what is holding us back from following Christ with all of our hearts? Um, so no matter where you're at on that spectrum, um, let me encourage you in this in-house conversation that we've been having uh, for followers of Christ, um, trust him in faith. The trust in faith that you needed to enter into that relationship is something that you need to build that relationship, to maintain it, to cultivate it. Um, and this takes time and it takes effort. Um, you're not trying to earn God's favor, but it does take effort to build and grow in that relationship. Um, and this passage gives us some really clear ways to do that. Um, it points us back to Christ's words, to read them, to think about them, think about his character, think about his actions, and take the time to let them get to your heart. His burden is easy. His commands are so good. They're a gift to us that show us life as it's meant to be lived. So don't reject that gift. Um, when I hear the word command, sometimes I cringe because it makes me think, oh, that's what I have to do. I don't need more law. I need good news. And God's commands are good news. His grace is at the center of them. He gives us the design for life so we can live as it's best lived. Um, don't let a gift become a burden. Um, don't lose sight of the fact that your ability to bear the fruit of God, um, that he has laid out for you as his disciple, is totally dependent on his grace. And second, as Christ concludes this um, teaching with his disciples, don't forget that it's dependent on us living in connection together as the body of Christ. Um, this is talking about a lot more than just superficial relationships. Um, it's talking about ones defined by sacrificial love. Um, and this is only possible because of Christ and the Holy Spirit working in us. Um, without Jesus in the equation, this is crazy. Um, why would I give up myself? Um, myself is the only thing I can control. That's the only thing I can be sure that I can protect. Um, but to give up ourself for the love of another, um, 
it reflects a bigger thing, the love of God. The love of God is bigger than our individual lives, and as we enter into that, by laying our lives down for each other, we experience God's love the way that he loves us. Um, and so I want to close us tonight um, by praying, because that's a really, um, obviously we close in prayer every week, um, but that's one way that this passage tells us that we can respond to God's love, um, that we can embrace his mission to the world and become a part of that. It's really easy for me to catch myself thinking that I can live out God's will for my life, um, and that's something that has to do with the choices I make. Um, do I move here? Do I move there? Do I do this program? Do I switch to that program? Um, do I quit this team? Do I join that organization? Do I, you know, there's so many questions, and I so often make living God's will for my life all about me. Um, but something that's really clear in all of Scripture is that living out our will for God's will for our lives can only happen in community. We're designed for life together, and so we need to consider that as we think about how God wants us to live out his will for our lives in the places that he's called us. He calls us not just to places, he calls us to people, he calls us to community. Um, and so the places you are, people might not be perfect, but it's probably not an accident that you're there. Um, and so let's love each other self-sacrificially. Um, why don't we pray for this? God, uh, we thank you for your word, and uh, we thank you that, um, God, it is, it is sharp. Um, you teach us. Uh, sometimes sometimes uh, that, that hurts me uh, because I can see areas where I can stray from uh, following you faithfully, Lord, and I have to admit that sometimes that has caused me pain. Um, God, I pray that you would um, keep our hearts in, pardon me, in line with yours, um, that we would um, build our relationship with you, God, and that that would be um, at the center of our lives. And God, uh, I pray that you would give us a picture of your grace, um, that your grace would impact the way that we see our situations, that we would love your commands, that we would recognize that it's out of your grace that you've given them to us, that we might be able to know how to live best in the world. Um, we thank you that we're friends with you. Um, we're friends, not because we earned our way to you, um, but because you chose us, Lord. Um, because you came to us, you pursued us out of love, God. Um, and we can respond to that by loving others. Um, not because we have it in ourselves, but because you've given it to us. And now we can share that gift um, with the world. And so we pray that we would be a people um, that is marked by love. That we would be a people that is marked by unity. That we wouldn't try uh, to, that we wouldn't be fooled into trying to live out our lives um, as individual players thinking that we can do it apart from the people you've called us to. You've put us where we are for a reason, um, and that deals with places, that deals with our individual choices, but that also uh, deals with people, and that changes the way that we look at our lives. And so um, it's only by your spirit and by your grace that we can live out this calling, um, but it's completely possible in you. And so I pray that you would write that on our hearts and help us to trust that, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.